HearSpurgeon.com. A Charles Spurgeon podcast. The Great Change. Conversion. From Volume 1 of Spurgeon's Autobiography. A recounting of January 6, 1850, the day Charles Spurgeon was saved. I have heard men tell the story of their conversion and of their spiritual life in such a way that my heart has loathed them and their story too, for they have told of their sins as if they did boast in the greatness of their crime, and they have mentioned the love of God not with a tear of gratitude, not with the simple thanksgiving of the really humble heart, but as if they as much exalted themselves as they exalted God." Oh, when we tell the story of our own conversion, I would have it done with great sorrow, remembering what we used to be, and with great joy and gratitude, remembering how little we deserve these things. I was once preaching upon conversion and salvation, and I felt within myself, as preachers often do, that it was but dry work to tell this story, and a dull, dull tale it was to me. But all of a sudden, the thought crossed my mind, why, you are a poor, lost, ruined sinner yourself. Tell it. Tell it as you received it. Begin to tell of the grace of God as you trust you feel it yourself. Why, then, my eyes began to be fountains of tears. Those hearers who had nodded their heads began to brighten up, and they listened, because they were hearing something which the speaker himself felt and which they recognized as being true to him if it was not true to them. Can you not remember, dearly beloved, that day of days, that best and brightest of hours, when first you saw the Lord, lost your burden, received the role of promise, rejoiced in full salvation, and went on your way in peace? My soul can never forget that day, dying, all but dead, diseased, pained, chained, scourged, bound in fetters of iron, in darkness and the shadow of death. Jesus appeared unto me. My eyes looked to him. The disease was healed. The pains removed. Chains were snapped. Prison doors were opened. Darkness gave place to light. What delight filled my soul. What mirth, what ecstasy, What sound of music and dancing, what soaring towards heaven, what heights and depths of ineffable delight. Scarcely ever since then have I known joys which surpassed the rapture of that first hour. CHS Let our lips crowd sonnets within the compass of a word. Let our voice distill hours of melody into a single syllable. Let our tongue utter in one letter the essence of the harmony of ages. For we write of an hour which as far excels all other days of our life, as gold exceeds dross. As the night of Israel's Passover was a night to be remembered, a theme for poets and an incessant fountain of grateful song. Even so is the time of which we now tell, the never-to-be-forgotten hour of our emancipation from guilt and our justification in Jesus." Other days have mingled with their fellows till, like coins worn in circulation, their image and superscription are entirely obliterated. 
But this day remains new, fresh, bright, as distinct in all its parts as if it were but yesterday struck from the mint of time. Memory shall drop from the palsied hand many a memento which now she cherishes, but she shall never, even when she totters to the grave, unbind from her heart the token of the thrice-happy hour of the redemption of our spirit. The emancipated galley slave may forget the day which heard his broken fetters rattle on the ground. The pardoned traitor may fail to remember the moment when the axe of the headsman was averted by a pardon, and the long-despairing mariner may not recollect the moment when a friendly hand snatched him from the hungry deep. But, O hour of forgiven sin, moment of perfect pardon, our soul shall never forget you while within her life and being find an immortality. Each day of our life has had its attendant angel, but on this day, like Jacob at Mahanaim, hosts of angels met us. The sun had risen every morning, but on that eventful morn, he had the light of seven days. As the days of heaven upon earth, as the years of immortality, as the ages of glory, as the bliss of heaven, so were the hours of that thrice happy day. Rapture divine and ecstasy inexpressible filled our soul. Fear, distress, and grief, with all their train of woes, fled hastily away, and in their place joys came without number. When I was in the hand of the Holy Spirit, under conviction of sin, I had a clear and sharp sense of the justice of God. Sin, whatever it might be to other people, became to me an intolerable burden. It was not so much that I feared hell as that I feared sin. And all the while, I had upon my mind a deep concern for the honor of God's name and the integrity of his moral government. I felt that it would not satisfy my conscience if I could be forgiven unjustly, But then there came the question, how could God be just and yet justify me who had been so guilty? I was worried and wearied with this question. Neither could I see any answer to it. Certainly, I could never have invented an answer which could have satisfied my conscience. The doctrine of the atonement is, to my mind, one of the surest proofs of the divine inspiration of Holy Scripture— Who would or could have thought of the just ruler dying for the unjust rebel? This is no teaching of human mythology or dream of poetical imagination. This method of expiation is only known among men because it is a fact. Fiction could not have devised it. God himself ordained it. It is not a matter which could have been imagined. I had heard of the plan of salvation by the sacrifice of Jesus from my youth up, but I did not know any more about it in my inmost soul than if I had been born and bred a koi The light was there, but I was blind. It was of necessity that the Lord himself should make the matter plain to me. It came to me as a new revelation, as fresh as if I had never read in scripture that Jesus was declared to be the propitiation for sins, that God might be just. I believe it will have to come as a revelation to every newborn child of God whenever he sees it. I mean that glorious doctrine of the substitution of the Lord Jesus. I came to understand that salvation was possible through vicarious sacrifice, that the provision had been made in the first constitution and arrangement of things for such a substitution. 
I was made to see that he who is the Son of God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, had of old been made the covenant head of a chosen people, that he might in that capacity suffer for them and save them. Inasmuch as our fall was not at the first a personal one, for we fell in our federal representative, the first Adam, it became possible for us to be recovered by a second representative, even by him who has undertaken to be the covenant head of his people, so as to be their second Adam. And I saw that before I actually sinned, I had fallen by my first father's sin, and I rejoiced that therefore it became possible in point of law for me to rise by a second head and representative. The fall of Adam left a loophole of escape. Another Adam could undo the ruin wrought by the first. When I was anxious about the possibility of a just God pardoning me, I understood and saw by faith that he who is the Son of God became man and in his own blessed person bore my sin in his own body on the tree. I saw that the chastisement of my peace was laid on him and that with his stripes I was healed. It was because the Son of God, supremely glorious in his matchless person, undertook to vindicate the law by bearing the sentence due to me, that therefore God was able to pass by my sin. My sole hope for heaven lies in the full atonement made upon Calvary's cross for the ungodly. On that I firmly rely. I have not the shadow of hope anywhere else. Personally, I could never have overcome my own sinfulness. I tried and failed. My evil propensities were too many for me, till in the belief that Christ died for me, I cast my guilty soul on Him, and then I received a conquering principle by which I overcame my sinful self. The doctrine of the cross can be used to slay sin, even as the old warriors used their huge two-handed swords and mowed down their foes at every stroke. There is nothing like faith in the sinner's friend. It overcomes all evil. If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I cannot live in sin any longer, but must arouse myself to love and serve him who has redeemed me. I cannot trifle with the evil which slew my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? There was a day as I took my walks abroad when I came hard by a spot forever engraven upon my memory. For there I saw this friend, my best, my only friend, murdered. I stooped down in sad fear and looked at him. I saw that his hands had been pierced with rough iron nails and his feet had been rent in the same way. There was misery in that dead countenance so terrible that I scarcely dared to look upon it. His body was emaciated with hunger, his back was red with bloody scourges, and his brow had a circle of wounds about it. Clearly could one see that these had been pierced by thorns. I shuddered, for I had known this friend full well. He never had a fault. He was the purest of the pure, the holiest of the holy. Who could have injured him? For he never injured any man. All his life long he went about doing good. He had healed the sick. He had fed the hungry. He had raised the dead. For which of these works did they kill him? 
He had never breathed out anything else but love. And as I looked into the poor, sorrowful face, so full of agony, yet so full of love, I wondered who could have been a wretch so vile as to pierce hands like his. I said within myself, Where can these traitors live? Who are these that could have smitten such a one as this? Had they murdered an oppressor, we might have forgiven them. Had they slain one who had indulged in vice or villainy, it might have been his desert. Had it been a murderer and a rebel or one who had committed sedition, we would have said, bury his corpse. Justice has at last given him his due. But when you were slain, my best, my only beloved, where lodged the traitors? Let me seize them, and they shall be put to death. If there be torments that I can devise, surely they shall endure them all. Oh, what jealousy, what revenge I felt, if I might but find these murderers, what would I not do with them? And as I looked upon that corpse, I heard a footstep and wondered where it was. I listened, and I clearly perceived that the murderer was close at hand. It was dark, and I groped about to find him. I found that somehow or other, wherever I put out my hand, I could not meet with him, for he was nearer to me than my hand would go. At last I put my hand upon my chest. I have you now, said I, for look, he was in my own heart. The murderer was hiding within my own bosom, dwelling in the recesses of my inmost soul. Ah, then I wept indeed that I, in the very presence of my murdered master, should be harboring the murderer. And I felt myself most guilty while I bowed over his corpse and sang that plaintive hymn. "'Twas you, my sins, my cruel sins, his chief tormentors were." Each of my crimes became a nail, and unbelief the spear. Amid the rabble crowd which hounded the Redeemer to his doom, there were some gracious souls whose bitter anguish sought vent in wailing and lamentations, fit music to accompany that march of woe. When my soul can, in imagination, see the Savior bearing his cross to Calvary, she joins the godly women and weeps with them. For indeed, there is true cause for grief, cause lying deeper than those mourning women thought. They bewailed innocence maltreated, goodness persecuted, love bleeding, meekness about to die, but my heart has a deeper and more bitter cause to mourn. My sins were the scourges which lacerated those blessed shoulders and crowned with thorns those bleeding brows. My sins cried, crucify him, crucify him, and laid the cross upon his gracious shoulders. His being led forth to die is sorrow enough for one eternity, but my having been his murderer is more, infinitely more grief than one poor fountain of tears can express." Why those women loved and wept, it were not hard to guess, but they could not have had greater reasons for love and grief than my heart has. Nain's widow saw her son restored, but I myself have been raised to newness of life. Peter's wife's mother was cured of the fever, but I of the greater plague of sin. Out of Magdalene seven demons were cast, but a whole legion out of me. Mary and Martha were favored with visits from him, but he dwells with me. His mother bore his body, but he is formed in me, the hope of glory. 
in nothing behind the holy women in debt. Let me not be behind them in gratitude or sorrow. Love and grief, my heart dividing. With my tears, his feet I'll lave. Constant still in heart abiding. Weep for him who died to save. William Huntington says in his autobiography that one of the sharpest sensations of pain that he felt after he had been quickened by divine grace was this. He felt such pity for God. I do not know that I ever met with the expression elsewhere, but it is a very striking one. Although I might prefer to say that I have sympathy with God and grief that he should be treated so ill, ah, there are many men that are forgotten, that are despised, and that are trampled on by their fellows, but there never was a man who was so despised as the everlasting God has been. Many a man has been slandered and abused, but never was man abused as God has been. Many have been treated cruelly and ungratefully, but never was one treated as our God has been. I, too, once despised him. He knocked at the door of my heart, and I refused to open it. He came to me, times without number, morning by morning and night by night. He checked me in my conscience and spoke to me by his Holy Spirit. And when, at last, the thunders of the law prevailed in my conscience, I thought that Christ was cruel and unkind. Oh, I can never forgive myself that I should have thought so ill of him. But what a loving reception did I have when I went to him. I thought he would smite me, but his hand was not clenched in anger, but opened wide in mercy. I thought full sure that his eyes would dart lightning flashes of wrath upon me, but instead they were full of tears. He fell upon my neck and kissed me. He took off my rags and did clothe me with his righteousness and caused my soul to sing aloud for joy. While in the house of my heart and in the house of his church, there was music and dancing because his son that he had lost was found and he that had been dead was made alive again. There is a power in God's gospel beyond all description. Once I, like Mazeppa, lashed to the wild horse of my lust, bound hand and foot, incapable of resistance, was galloping on with hell's wolves behind me, howling for my body and my soul as their just and lawful prey. There came a mighty hand which stopped that wild horse, cut my bands, set me down, and brought me into liberty. Is there power in the gospel? Yes, there is, and he who has felt it must acknowledge it. There was a time when I lived in the strong old castle of my sins and rested in my own works. There came a trumpeter to the door and ordered me open it. I, with anger, chided him from the porch and said he never should enter. Then there came a goodly personage with loving countenance. His hands were marked with scars where nails had been driven, and his feet had nail prints too. He lifted up his cross, using it as a hammer. At the first blow, the gate of my prejudice shook. At the second, it trembled more. At the third, down it fell, and in he came, and he said, Arise and stand upon your feet, for I have loved you with an everlasting love. The gospel, a thing of power, ah, that it is. It always wears the dew of its youth. It glitters with morning freshness. Its strength and its glory abide forever. 
I have felt its power in my own heart. I have witness of the Spirit within my spirit, and I know it is a thing of might because it has conquered me and bowed me down. His free grace alone, from the first to the last, hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. In my conversion, The very point lay in making the discovery that I had nothing to do but to look to Christ and I should be saved. I believed that I had been a very good, attentive hearer. My own impression about myself was that nobody ever listened much better than I did. For years as a child, I tried to learn the way of salvation, and either I did not hear it set forth, which I think cannot quite have been the case, or else I was spiritually blind and deaf, and could not see it, and could not hear it. But the good news that I was, as a sinner, to look away from myself to Christ, as much startled me and came as fresh to me as any news ever heard in my life. Had I never read the Bible? Yes, and read it earnestly. Had I never been taught by Christian people? Yes, I had, by mother and father and others. Had I not heard the gospel? Yes, I think I had, and yet somehow it was like a new revelation to me that I was to believe and live. I confess to have been tutored in piety, put into my cradle by prayerful hands, and lulled to sleep by songs concerning Jesus. But after having heard the gospel continually, with line upon line, precept upon precept, here much and there much, yet when the word of the Lord came to me with power, It was as new as if I had lived amid the unvisited tribes of Central Africa and had never heard the tidings of the cleansing fountain filled with blood drawn from the Savior's veins. When for the first time I received the gospel to my soul's salvation, I thought that I had never really heard it before, and I began to think that the preachers to whom I had listened had not truly preached it. But on looking back, I am inclined to believe that I had heard the gospel fully preached many hundreds of times before, and that this was the difference, that I then heard it as though I heard it not. And when I did hear it, the message may not have been any more clear in itself than it had been at former times, but the power of the Holy Spirit was present to open my ear and to guide the message to my heart. I have no doubt that I heard scores of times such texts as these, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Yet I had no intelligent idea of what faith meant, When I first discovered what faith really was and exercised it, for me those two things came together, I believed as soon as ever I knew what believing meant. Then I thought I had never before heard that truth preached, but now I am persuaded that the light often shone on my eyes, but I was blind, and therefore I thought that the light had never come there. The light was shining all the while, but there was no power to receive it. The eyeball of the soul was not sensitive to the divine beams. I could not believe that it was possible that my sins could be forgiven. I do not know why, but I seemed to be the odd person in the world. When the catalog was made out, it appeared to me that for some reason I must have been left out. 
If God had saved me and not the world, I should have wondered indeed. But if he had saved all the world except me, that would have seemed to me to be but right. And now, being saved by grace, I cannot help saying, I am indeed a brand plucked out of the fire. I believe that some of us who were kept by God a long while before we found him love him better perhaps than we should have done if we had received him directly, and we can preach better to others. We can speak more of his loving kindness and tender mercy. John Bunyan could not have written as he did if he had not been dragged about by the devil for many years. I love that picture of dear old Christian. I know when I first read The Pilgrim's Progress and saw in it the woodcut of Christian carrying the burden on his back, I felt so interested in the poor fellow that I thought I should jump with joy when, after he had carried his heavy load so long, he at last got rid of it. And that was how I felt when the burden of guilt, which I had borne so long, was forever rolled away from my shoulders and my heart. I can recollect when, like the poor dove sent out by Noah from his hand, I flew over the wide expanse of the waters and hoped to find some place where I might rest my wearied wing. Up towards the north I flew, and my eye looked keenly through the mist and darkness, if perhaps it might find some floating substance on which my soul might rest its foot. But it found nothing. Again it turned its wing and flapped it, but not so rapidly as before, across the deep water that knew no shore. But still there was no rest. The raven had found its resting place upon a floating body and was feeding itself upon the flesh of some drowned man's carcass. But my poor soul found no rest. I flew on. I fancied I saw a ship sailing out at sea. It was the ship of the law. And I thought I would put my feet on its canvas or rest myself on its cordage for a time and find some refuge. But ah, it was an airy phantom on which I could not rest. For my foot had no right to rest on the law, I had not kept it, and the soul that keeps it not must die. At last I saw the ship, Christ Jesus, that happy ark, and I thought I would fly toward it, but my poor wing was weary, I could fly no further, and down I sank. But as providence would have it, when my wings were flagging and I was falling into the flood to be drowned, just below me was the roof of the ark, and I saw a hand put out from it, and one took hold of me and said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have not delivered the soul of my turtle dove into the multitude of the wicked. Come in, come in. Then I found that I had in my mouth an olive leaf of peace with God and peace with man, plucked off by Jesus' mighty power. Once, God preached to me by a similitude in the depth of winter. The earth had been black, and there was scarcely a green thing or a flower to be seen. As I looked across the fields, there was nothing but barrenness, bare hedges and leafless trees and black, black earth wherever I gazed. All of a sudden, God spoke and unlocked the treasures of the snow, and white flakes descended until there was no blackness to be seen, and all was one sheet of dazzling whiteness. It was at the time that I was seeking the Savior, and not long before I found Him. And I remember well that sermon which I saw before me in the snow. Come now, 
and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Personally, I have to bless God for many good books. I thank him for Dr. Doddridge's Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul, for Baxter's Call to the Unconverted, for Align's Alarm to Sinners, and for James's Anxious Inquirer. But my gratitude most of all is due to God, not for books, but for the preached word. And that too addressed to me by a poor, uneducated man, a man who had never received any training for the ministry and probably will never be heard of in this life. A man engaged in business, no doubt of a humble kind during the week, but who had just enough of grace to say on Sunday, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. The books were good, but the man was better. The revealed word awakened me, but it was the preached word that saved me, and I must ever attach peculiar value to the hearing of the truth, for by it I received the joy and peace in which my soul delights. While under concern of soul, I resolved that I would attend all the places of worship in the town where I lived, in order that I might find out the way of salvation. I was willing to do anything and be anything if God would only forgive my sin. I set off, determined to go round to all the chapels, and I did go to every place of worship, but for a long time I went in vain. I do not, however, blame the ministers. One man preached divine sovereignty, and I could hear him with pleasure. But what was that sublime truth to a poor sinner who wished to know what he must do to be saved? There was another admirable man who always preached about the law, but what was the use of plowing up ground that needed to be sown? Another was a practical preacher. I heard him, but it was very much like a commanding officer teaching the maneuvers of war to a set of men without feet. What could I do? All his exhortations were lost on me. I knew it was said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But I did not know what it was to believe on Christ. These good men all preached truths suited to many in their congregations who were spiritually minded people. But what I wanted to know was, how can I get my sins forgiven? And they never told me that. I desired to hear how a poor sinner under a sense of sin might find peace with God. And when I went, I heard a sermon on, be not deceived, God is not mocked, which cut me up still worse, but did not bring me into rest. I went again another day, and the text was something about the glories of the righteous. Nothing for poor me. I was like a dog under the table, not allowed to eat the children's food. I went time after time, and I can honestly say that I do not know that I ever went without prayer to God, and I am sure there was not a more attentive hearer than myself in all the place, for I panted and longed to understand how I might be saved." I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or fifteen people. 
I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved, and if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just says, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Yes! he said in broad Essex. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good fellow followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, "'Young man, you look very miserable.' Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, And you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then, lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ! Look! 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 You have nothing to do but to look and live! I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. 
Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was, no doubt, all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. I do from my soul confess that I never was satisfied till I came to Christ. When I was yet a child, I had far more wretchedness than ever I have now. I will even add more weariness, more care, more heartache than I know to this day. I may be singular in this confession, but I make it and know it to be the truth. Since that dear hour when my soul cast itself on Jesus, I have found solid joys and peace. But before that, all those supposed gaieties of early youth, all the imagined ease and joy of boyhood were but vanity and vexation of spirit to me. That happy day when I found the Savior and learned to cling to his dear feet was a day never to be forgotten by me. An obscure child, unknown, unheard of, I listened to the word of God and that precious text led me to the cross of Christ. I can testify that the joy of that day was utterly indescribable. I could have leaped. I could have danced. There was no expression, however fanatical, which would have been out of keeping with the joy of my spirit at that hour. Many days of Christian experience have passed since then, but there has never been one which has had the full exhilaration, the sparkling delight which that first day had. I thought I could have sprung from the seat on which I sat and have called out with the wildest of those Methodist brethren who were present. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. A monument of grace. A sinner saved by blood. My spirit saw its chains broken to pieces. I felt that I was an emancipated soul, an heir of heaven, a forgiven one, accepted in Christ Jesus, plucked out of the miry clay and out of the horrible pit with my feet set upon a rock and my goings established. I thought I could dance all the way home. I could understand what John Bunyan meant when he declared he wanted to tell the crows on the plowed land all about his conversion. He was too full to hold. He felt he must tell somebody. It is not everyone who can remember the very day and hour of his deliverance. But as Richard Nill said, at such a time of the day, clang went every harp in heaven, for Richard Nill was born again. It was even so with me. The clock of mercy struck in heaven the hour and moment of my emancipation, for the time had come. Between half past ten o'clock when I entered that chapel and half past twelve o'clock when I was back again at home, what a change had taken place in me. I had passed from darkness into marvelous light, from death to life, simply by looking to Jesus. I had been delivered from despair, and I was brought into such a joyous state of mind that when they saw me at home, they said to me, Something wonderful has happened to you, and I was eager to tell them all about it. 
Oh, there was joy in that household that day when all heard that the eldest son had found the Savior and knew himself to be forgiven, bliss compared with which all joys are less than nothing and vanity. Yes, I had looked to Jesus as I was and found in him my Savior. Thus had the eternal purpose of Jehovah decreed it, and as the moment before there was none more wretched than I was, so within that second there was none more joyous. It took no longer time than does the lightning flash. It was done, and never has it been undone. I looked and lived and leaped in joyful liberty as I beheld my sin punished upon the great substitute and put away forever. I looked unto him as he bled upon that tree, his eyes darted a glance of love unutterable into my spirit, and in a moment I was saved. Looking unto him, the bruises that my soul had suffered were healed, the gaping wounds were cured, the broken bones rejoiced. The rags that had covered me were all removed. My spirit was white as the spotless snows of the far-off north. I had melody within my spirit, for I was saved, washed, cleansed, forgiven through him that did hang upon the tree. My master, I cannot understand how you could stoop your awesome head to such a death as the death of the cross, how you could take from your brow the crown of stars which from old eternity had shone resplendent there, but how you should permit the thorn crown to gird your temples astonishes me far more, that you should cast away the mantle of your glory, the azure of your everlasting empire, I cannot comprehend, but how you should have become Come veiled in the ignominious purple for a while, and then be mocked by impious men who bowed to you as a pretended king, and how you should be stripped naked to your shame without a single covering and die a felon's death. This is still more incomprehensible, but the marvel is that you should have suffered all this for me. Truly, your love to me is wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Was ever grief like yours? Was ever love like yours that could open the floodgates of such grief? Was ever love so mighty as to become the fount from which such an ocean of grief could come rolling down? There was never anything so true to me as those bleeding hands and that thorn-crowned head. Home, friends, health, wealth, comforts all lost their luster that day when he appeared, just as stars are hidden by the light of the sun. He was the only Lord and giver of life's best bliss, the one well of living water springing up into everlasting life. As I saw Jesus on his cross before me, and I mused upon his sufferings and death, I thought I saw him cast a look of love upon me, and then I looked at him and cried, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. He said, Come, And I flew to him and clasped him. And when he let me go again, I wondered where my burden was. It was gone. There in the sepulcher it lay. And I felt light as air, like a winged sylph. I could fly over mountains of trouble and despair. And oh, what liberty and joy I had. I could leap with ecstasy, for I had much forgiven. And I was freed from sin. 
With the spouse in the canticles, I could say, I found him. I, a lad, found the Lord of glory. I, a slave to sin, found the great deliverer. I, the child of darkness, found the light of life. I, the uttermost of the lost, found my Savior and my God. I, widowed and desolate, found my friend, my beloved, my husband. Oh, how I wondered that I should be pardoned. It was not the pardon that I wondered at so much. The wonder was that it should come to me. I marveled that he should be able to pardon such sins as mine, such crimes, so numerous and so black, and that after such an accusing conscience, he should have the power to still every wave within my spirit and make my soul like the surface of a river, undisturbed, quiet, and at ease. It mattered not to me whether the day itself was gloomy or bright. I had found Christ." That was enough for me. He was my savior. He was my all. And I can heartily say that one day of pardoned sin was a sufficient recompense for the whole five years of conviction. I have to bless God for every terror that ever scared me by night and for every foreboding that alarmed me by day. It has made me happier ever since. For now, if there be trouble weighing upon my soul, I thank God it is not such a burden as that which bowed me to the very earth and made me creep upon the ground like a beast by reason of heavy distress and affliction. I know I never can again suffer what I have suffered. I never can, except I be sent to hell, know more of the agony that I have known. And now, that ease, that joy and peace in believing, that no condemnation which belongs to me as a child of God is made doubly sweet and inexpressibly precious by the recollection of my past days of sorrow and grief. Blessed be you, O God, forever, who have by those black days, like a dreary winter, have made these summer days all the fairer and sweeter. I need not walk through the earth fearful of every shadow and afraid of every man I meet, for sin is washed away. My spirit is no more guilty. It is pure. It is holy. The frown of God no longer rests upon me, but my father smiles. I see his eyes. They are glancing love. I hear his voice. It is full of sweetness. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. When I look back upon it, I can see one reason why the word was blessed to me as I heard it preached in that primitive Methodist chapel at Colchester. I had been up early crying to God for the blessing. As a lad, when I was seeking the Savior, I used to rise with the sun that I might get time to read gracious books and to seek the Lord. I can recall the kinds of pleas I used when I took my arguments and came before the throne of grace. Lord, save me. It will glorify your grace to save such a sinner as I am. Lord, save me, else I am lost to all eternity. Do not let me perish. Lord, save me. O Lord, for Jesus died by his agony and bloody sweat, by his cross and passion. Save me. I often proved that the early morning was the best part of the day. I liked those prayers of which the psalmist said, In the morning shall my prayer come before you. The Holy Spirit, who enabled me to believe, gave me peace through believing. 
I felt as sure that I was forgiven as before I felt sure of condemnation. I had been certain of my condemnation because the word of God declared it and my conscience bore witness to it. But when the Lord justified me, I was made equally certain by the same witnesses. The word of the Lord in the scripture says, He that believes on him is not condemned. And my conscience bore witness that I believed and that God in pardoning me was just. Thus I had the witness of the Holy Spirit and also of my own conscience. And these two agreed in one. That great and excellent man, Dr. Johnson, used to hold the opinion that no man could ever know that he was pardoned, that there was no such thing as assurance of faith. Perhaps if Dr. Johnson had studied his Bible a little more and had had a little more of the enlightenment of the Spirit, he too might have come to know his own pardon. Certainly he was no very reliable judge of theology, any more than he was of porcelain, which he once attempted to make and never succeeded. I think both in theology and porcelain, his opinion is of very little value. How can a man know that he is pardoned? There is a text which says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it irrational to believe that I am saved? He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, says Christ in John's Gospel. I believe on Christ. Am I absurd in believing that I have eternal life? I find the Apostle Paul speaking by the Holy Spirit and saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. If I know that my trust is fixed on Jesus only and that I have faith in Him, Were it not 10,000 times more absurd for me not to be at peace than for me to be filled with joy unspeakable? It is but taking God at his word when the soul knows as a necessary consequence of its faith that it is saved. I took Jesus as my savior and I was saved. And I can tell the reason why I took him for my savior. To my own humiliation, I must confess that I did it because I could not help it. I was shut up to it. That stern law work had hammered me into such a condition that if there had been 50 other saviors, I could not have thought of them. I was driven to this one. I wanted a divine savior. I wanted one who was made a curse for me to expiate my guilt. I wanted one who had died for I deserved to die. I wanted one who had risen again, who was able by his life to make me live. I wanted the exact Savior that stood before me in the word, revealed to my heart, and I could not help having him. I could realize then the language of Rutherford, when being full of the love to Christ, once upon a time in the dungeon of Aberdeen, he said, "'O my Lord,' If there were a broad hell between me and you, if I could not get at you except by wading through it, I would not think twice, but I would go through it all if I might but embrace you and call you mine. Oh, how I loved him. Passing all loves except his own was the love which I felt for him then. If beside the door of the place in which I met with him, there had been a stake of blazing sticks, I would have stood upon them without chains, glad to give my flesh and blood and bones to be ashes that should testify my love to him. 
Had he asked me then to give all my substance to the poor, I would have given all and thought myself to be amazingly rich in having impoverished myself for his name's sake. Had he commanded me then to preach in the midst of all his foes, I could have said, There's not a lamb in all thy flock I would disdain to feed. There's not a foe before whose face I'd fear thy cause to plead. Has Jesus saved me? I dare not speak with any hesitation here. I know he has. His word is true. Therefore, I am saved. My evidence that I am saved does not lie in the fact that I preach or that I do this or that. All my hope lies in this, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. I am a sinner. I trust in him. Then he came to save me and I am saved. I live habitually in the enjoyment of this blessed fact, and it is long since I have doubted the truth of it, for I have his own word to sustain my faith. It is a very surprising thing, a thing to be marveled at most of all by those who enjoy it. I know that it is to me, even to this day, the greatest wonder that I ever heard of, that God should ever justify me. I feel myself to be a lump of unworthiness, a mass of corruption, and a heap of sin apart from his almighty love. Yet I know by a full assurance that I am justified by faith which is in Christ Jesus and treated as if I had been perfectly just and made an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, though by nature I must take my place among the most sinful." I, who am altogether undeserving, am treated as if I had been deserving. I am loved with as much love as if I had always been godly, whereas before I was ungodly. I have always considered with Luther and Calvin that the sum and substance of the gospel lies in that word, substitution, Christ standing in the stead of man. If I understand the gospel, it is this— I deserve to be lost forever. The only reason why I should not be damned is that Christ was punished in my stead and there is no need to execute a sentence twice for sin. On the other hand, I know I cannot enter heaven unless I have a perfect righteousness. I am absolutely certain I shall never have one of my own for I find I sin every day. But then Christ had a perfect righteousness, and he said, There, poor sinner, take my garment and put it on. You shall stand before God as if you were Christ, and I will stand before God as if I had been the sinner. I will suffer in the sinner's stead, and you shall be rewarded for works which you did not do, but which I did for you. I find it very convenient every day to come to Christ as a sinner, as I came at the first. You are no saint, says the devil. Well, if I am not, I am a sinner. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sink or swim, I go to him. Other hope? I have none. By looking to him, I received all the faith which inspired me with confidence in his grace and the word that first drew my soul, look unto me, still rings its clear note in my ears. There I once found conversion and there I shall ever find refreshing and renewal. 
Let me bear my personal testimony of what I have seen, what my own ears have heard, and my own heart has tasted. First, Christ is the only begotten of the Father. He is divine to me if he be human to all the world besides. He has done that for me which none but a God could do. He has subdued my stubborn will, melted a heart of adamant, broken a chain of steel, opened the gates of brass, and snapped the bars of iron. He has turned for me my mourning into laughter and my desolation into joy. He has led my captivity captive and made my heart rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let others think as they will of him. To me, he must ever be the only begotten of the Father. Blessed be his holy name. Oh, that I could now adore him like the heavenly host above, who forever bow before him and unceasing sing his love. Happy songsters, when shall I your chorus join? Again, I bear my testimony that he is full of grace. Ah, had he not been, I should never have beheld his glory. I was full of sin to overflowing. I was condemned already because I believed not upon him. He drew me when I wanted not to come. And though I struggled hard, he continued still to draw. And when at last I came to his mercy seat, all trembling like a condemned culprit, he said, your sins, which are many, are all forgiven you. Be of good cheer. Let others despise him, but I bear witness that he is full of grace. Finally, I bear my witness that he is full of truth. True have his promises been, not one has failed. I have often doubted him, for that I blush. He has never failed me. In this I must rejoice. His promises have been yes and amen. I do but speak the testimony of every believer in Christ, though I put it thus personally to make it the more forcible. I bear witness that never servant had such a master as I have. Never brother had such a kinsman as he has been to me. Never spouse had such a husband as Christ has been to my soul. Never sinner a better savior. Never soldier a better captain. Never mourner a better comforter than Christ has been to my spirit. I want none beside him. In life, he is my life. And in death, he shall be the death of death. In poverty, Christ is my riches. In sickness, he makes my bed. In darkness, he is my star. And in brightness, he is my sun. By faith, I understand that the blessed Son of God redeemed my soul with his own heart's blood and by sweet experience. I know that he raised me up from the pit of dark despair and set my feet on the rock. He died for me. This is the root of every satisfaction I have. He put all my transgressions away. He cleansed me with his precious blood. He covered me with his perfect righteousness. He wrapped me up in his own virtues. He has promised to keep me while I abide in this world from its temptations and snares. And when I depart from this world, he has already prepared for me a mansion in the heaven of unfading blood and a crown of everlasting joy that shall never, never fade away. To me then, the days or years of my mortal sojourn on this earth 
are of little moment, nor is the manner of my decease of much consequence. Should foes sentence me to martyrdom, or physicians declare that I must soon depart this life, it is all alike. A few more rolling suns at most shall land me on fair Canaan's coast." What more can I wish than that, while my brief term on earth shall last, I should be the servant of him who became the servant of servants for me. I can say, concerning Christ's religion, if I had to die like a dog and had no hope whatever of immortality, if I wanted to lead a happy life, let me serve my God with all my heart. Let me be a follower of Jesus and walk in his footsteps. If there were no hereafter, I would still prefer to be a Christian and the humblest Christian minister to being a king or an emperor, for I am persuaded that there are more delights in in Christ, yes, more joy in one glimpse of his face than is to be found in all the praises of this harlot world and in all the delights which it can yield to us in its sunniest and brightest days. And I am persuaded that what he has been till now, he will be to the end, and where he has begun a good work, he will carry it on. In the religion of Jesus Christ, there are clusters even on earth too heavy for one man to carry. There are fruits that have been found so rich that even angel lips have never been sweetened with more luscious wine. There are joys to be had here so fair that even Kate's ambrosial and the nectared wine of paradise can scarcely excel the sweets of satisfaction that are to be found in the earthly banquets of the Lord." I have seen hundreds and thousands who have given their hearts to Jesus, but I never did see one who said he was disappointed in him. I never met with one who said Jesus Christ was less than he was declared to be. When first my eyes beheld him, when the burden slipped from off my heavy-laden shoulders and I was free from condemnation, I thought that all the preachers I had ever heard had not half preached. They had not told half the beauty of my Lord and Master. So good, so generous, so gracious, so willing to forgive. It seemed to me as if they had almost slandered him. They painted his likeness, doubtless as well as they could, but it was a mere smudge compared with the matchless beauties of his face. All who have ever seen him will say the same. I go back to my home many a time, mourning that I cannot preach my master even as I myself know him. And what I know of him is very little compared with the matchlessness of his grace. Would that I knew more of him and could tell it out better. Thank you for listening to this message originally penned by Charles Spurgeon. Some of the older language has been updated. Please visit us at hearspurgeon.com where you can find a PDF version of the original manuscript as well as many other resources. Feel free to duplicate and distribute this material, but please do not charge anyone for it or in any way alter its content without permission. You can support this ministry by subscribing, liking, following, sharing, and leaving us positive reviews. Most importantly, please join with us in praying that God would use these sermons both to save those who are lost and impassion his people for his glory.